took one class on programming language concepts where we did Lisp, Haskell, and uh, Prolog. And I promised myself that functional programming is utterly useless. I don't see a point of it. I'll never touch it again. And uh, you know, that was that. I think seeing people like Dave Thomas give talks on it, Sasha Yurik, really gave me that motivation. Like this is this is worth it. I need to I need to understand these models, and then you know I too can have some of these superpowers maybe. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Beam Radio, where your fabulous panel of hosts brings you all things Beam. What we'll do is we'll kick off with a brief round of introductions for our excellent panel of hosts, and then we will introduce today's main host uh, and a topic that he will walk us through that I personally am very excited about, but I won't give anything away just yet. So hi, I'm Sophie De Benedetto. We are also joined by Lars Wickman. Hello. Hey Lars, welcome. We've got Bruce Tate of Groxio. Hi everybody. Hey Bruce, and we've got today's host, Alex Kumos. Howdy, howdy. Hey, Alex. So before we dive in and learn a little bit more about Alex, I would love to hear a word from our fabulous sponsor, Grox.io. I know, is it Groxio or Grox.io, Bruce? I feel like we say it both ways. How do you it, say it? It's Groxio. Groxio. Okay, awesome. A word from our fabulous sponsor, Groxio, which I'm sure our listeners know by this point is career fuel for programmers. Bruce, what's new? Yeah, so I'm putting the, the finishing touches on our Sensor Hub project for NERVS. By the time that this is out, that will be released and um, fully underway. And it basically talks about uh, one project that you can build and one organizational detail. And the organizational detail is how do you build projects using the Poncho organization? Very cool, very exciting. I definitely recommend that our listeners check it out if they have yet to do so. All right, I am going to turn it over to Alex, our host for today. Alex is the author of the Elixir Tip Twitter series, which personally I love. I feel like I either learn something new every time I see it, or I'm just reminded of some cool thing that I forgot about. And I also just want to give you props for making those tips like really beautifully formatted and the UI is just really nice and pleasing. And I am terrible at all of that stuff, but I really appreciate when I see others do it well. Uh, you're also a senior engineer at Boulevard, a frequent blogger at acutmost.com, the maintainer of a few open source libraries, uh, one of which I hope we'll get a chance to talk about today. But before I, again, give too much away about you, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit. And in particular, we'd love to hear about your background and what brought you into Elixir. Yeah, sure thing. Um, yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, currently work at Boulevard. Uh, so that's a... Uh, uh, a place where we use pretty much Elixir all over the you know, all over the stack, so that's always good to do uh, Elixir during the day job. Uh, but as to how I got into Elixir, uh, so I'm actually going to rewind way back to my youth days when my dad would bring old decommissioned uh, computers back from work, uh, the ones I had like the Gates and the five and a quarter inch floppies, and uh, you know my dad would teach me how to navigate the the CLI. I think back then it was just DOS, and I don't even remember what version of it it was. But uh, you know, from from that day, I was I was hooked on computers, and uh, you know, from just typing random things into the terminal, and the thing just kept on saying, you know, command not found. Uh, you know, I'm always in search of that command. So that's that's kind of where my programming roots uh, began. Yeah, after that, got into programming my TI-83 calculator to avoid studying for exams. But uh, the funny thing was, after like programming 
and trying to understand the you know the problem that I was trying to solve, I actually got a really good grasp of the the material. So come exam time, I never actually needed to use my own programs that I wrote because I understood the material so well. So I uh, you know I, I guess in trying to get out of studying for the exams, I studied for the exams. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. My my own laziness caught up with me there. Yeah, after that. Um, studied computer science, uh, both undergrad and grad, did mostly imperative programming, so C, C++, Java, took one class on programming language concepts where we did Lisp, Haskell, and uh, Prolog, and I promised myself that functional programming is utterly useless, I don't see a point of it, I'll never touch it again, and uh, you know, that was that, but after, after going into industry for quite a bit, I was really... And I, I, I was I was trying to find a, a language where um, a lot of my pain points were kind of solved. Most of those being uh, like testing and concurrency, and the languages I was using day to day just weren't checking off those boxes. So I was uh, I was a little underwhelmed by uh, you know by Java, a little underwhelmed by PHP. Did quite a bit of uh, you know JavaScript and Node.js. And there was always something kind of lacking there. Um, so I remember watching a uh, YouTube video that uh, Dave Thomas had on a uh, when he was at a uh, at a conference uh, about this thing called Elixir. And uh, I watched that video and I was like, "This Dave Thomas fellow, he's a he's a smart guy. I missed the Ruby train, but uh, if he's saying that this Elixir thing is is important and uh, and super powerful, I'll probably listen this time around." So. After watching that video, I watched a couple more conference talks on Elixir, and then finally decided to pick up uh, a book on on Go in action and Elixir in action, and uh, kind of compare the two languages and see you know what was going to be my next uh, daily driver language. Yeah, on the edge getting... of my seat. What did you choose? <laughs> uh, spoiler alert: it was it was Elixir. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Then since uh, I think that was like 20, 2015. Yeah, 2015, 2016. And ever since then, I've been I've been hooked on the language. It still continues to amaze me what I'm able to accomplish. Uh, you know, today. Uh, I don't know. Every day I program, it still feels like the first day I'm programming in Elixir. If that makes sense. Yeah, it's, that's a pretty cool story, and it mirrors mine pretty closely. One of the things that really caught me about it was that the first pass through functional programming didn't take, and the second one did. And since Sophie and I are so interested. And, and the idea of teaching programming, um, I'd love to hear why it didn't take the first time, what was missing, and what was it about the second time that made it stick? Yeah, I think I think it's a combination of a couple of things. So I, I remember with Lisp specifically, the, the parentheses were killing me. I'm curious if I go back and try it now, if, if I would think differently about it. But um, I, just, I just found it very difficult to get my thoughts and like what I wanted to accomplish down, you know, in, in my in my editor, uh, whether it was like for, you know formatting the code or you know missing a parenthesis or I think with Lisp it was the syntax that got me. Uh, with Prolog, I think it was the, uh, and I'm probably going to butcher some of the uh, you know, the the vernacular because it's been a long time since I've even touched uh, Prolog, but uh, I, I think it was the programming model on Prolog where you kind of you know you set up your facts. And then you know, Prolog is able to you know figure out what would fit those circumstances. What, what's that called? Uh, I forget what's that called in, in Prolog. So there are facts and there are inferences. And um, uh, gosh, I just I just coded a um, a Prolog series earlier this year for Grokio. I still can't come up with anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, so I, th I think it was the programming model in Prolog that got me. 
I think Haskell was like the last language we did in that class. I think by that point I was like, yeah, one, you know, one FP language didn't do it for me. The other one didn't do it for me. This third one, I'm going to, I'm going to categorize them all into this dislike bucket. And uh, I didn't, I didn't really, uh, I didn't like it. So in addition to, you know, some of the syntax and, uh, and, and programming models, I think it was also the fact that my, my brain was very much wired and imperative and, and uh, OO like concepts. And I just had to get past that in order to really have it uh, take and, and to see the value there. And so what was different about stepping into Elixir? What, um, what little short circuit got repaired <laughs> as, as you took this, this second pass into functional programming? I think it was, I think it was mostly stubbornness. Uh, Cause like I was, I was hell bent on, on like figuring it out. Like it didn't matter how many times the compiler complained at me, like I would, I would keep at it. And I think that's kind of the difference between when you take something in university, like, oh, I just, I just got to get through this class and, and be done with this and get the A and, you know, I'll carry on with my life versus when you're, you know, when it's like a, an internal motivation, you, you, you want to see it through to the end. So no matter how many like roadblocks I hit with Elixir, the fact that there were so many smart people using it, I was convinced that I needed to get, uh, I needed to understand these concepts and get them so that I can get some of these like superpowers. So I think, I think seeing people like Dave Thomas give talks on it, Sasha Yurik really gave me that motivation. Like this is, this is worth it. I need to, I need to understand these models. And then, you know, I too can have some of these superpowers maybe. I, wonder, I love the phrase yeah. superpowers when we talk about Elixir. I wonder if uh, we have a new slogan for the language, like Elixir, you gotta be stubborn. I do love that. From talking to you previously outside of podcasts, uh, I know you have been involved in uh, a few startups and like you've been running running businesses and working in businesses uh, for a good while. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure thing. Um, yeah, so I... I did around two years at Amazon and after, you know, the giant multinational conglomerate company, I was like, you know, what? maybe this isn't the, the place for me. I think I like, uh, you know, smaller scale operations. Uh, so since working at Amazon, I, I've transitioned to mostly working at startups. I think I like that, that smaller vibe a little bit better. But as for yeah, starting my own thing, uh, I did attempt to start uh, a few startups. I have yet to succeed, but that doesn't mean I won't keep on trying. This, this goes back to that, uh, that stubbornness. Uh, while learning Elixir, a uh, a former coworker of mine and and I were you know we're keeping in touch after we moved to different companies, and uh, you know he had this idea of starting like um, I can I can say the idea now because the you know we abandoned this project a few years ago, but we wanted to start like an Uber for uh, commercial vehicles, and he was from uh, Senegal, Africa, so we're gonna we're gonna start the company over there. Uh, so I actually wrote. Pretty much the entire app in in Vue on the front end and Elixir on the back end, and we deployed it to, to GCP uh, app engine. I think this was like 2016 ish, 20 uh, 2017 ish. Yeah, it was super exciting, but we just you know we just couldn't get enough uh, enough traction. I think our our product market fit was a little a little off uh, for you know for the the market over there in Senegal. But I, I learned quite a bit actually because I was I was the technical founder. He was the business side of the house. So I, I owned the entire stack, you know, did the front end, did the back end, did the deployment, wrote all the, uh, uh, you know, the DevOpsy bits. So that was, that was fun kind of owning that whole project start to finish and uh, yeah, definitely learned quite a bit. So what was the language that you came from? Uh, and that whole, you said, well, I was using these other languages. I didn't hear you, um, you kind of commit 
so I did mostly Java at uh, at Amazon. Um, so that was like my day to day language. At the same time, I was uh, I was working at Amazon. I was actually completing my my master's degree, and that was all C C plus plus and uh, CUDA, which is the um, it's just like a an extension of C plus plus that you can run on your GPUs. Uh, so my thesis was about SIMD programming on uh, graphics cards. So that was all C++. So my, my day job was Java. My free time was, was C++ effectively. And while I have a soft spot for C++ in my heart, it is a, it's a tough language and, you know, you, your programs will have bugs in, in odd ways. You know, maybe after like, you know, many years of programming it, you don't see it that way. But uh, at, at that point, I had been doing C++ for quite a bit, and I was still like, you know, out of bounds memory exceptions and uh, and you know, double uh, unallocating things accidentally. So like the the language and the uh, and, and the uh, the runtime there gives you quite a bit of uh, of rope to hang yourself. Yeah, after Java, uh, the company I worked for afterwards, the the flagship app uh, app that they had was written in, in PHP. And uh, had some uh, some Python uh, services as well around it, but um, yeah, I mean those those languages didn't really do it for me, so they're kind of just like my day job uh, languages. And then I started learning more about Node because that was all the you know the, the hotness back in the day. I you know I even lived through the IOJS uh, fork back when that was a thing. But yeah, the concurrency model in 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 uh, JavaScript and specifically like the Node runtime just it left something to be desired, right? Where you always have to be wary. Oh, am I blocking the event loop? Because this whole server is going to be useless if, for whatever reason, I accidentally do something uh, uh, CPU bound and you know nothing else gets a chance in the event loop. And uh, like after coming across that in production a couple times, I, I felt that there had to have been a better way to do this. And then you realize that you know the event loop is just like one gen server, and you can spin off all your tasks in a task supervisor, and you could pretty much summarize the whole node runtime in one gen server and task supervisor. Uh, and you see that, and you're like, "Wow, this is this is this is something I need to leverage." Yeah. So it seems like um, you, you were having difficulty with different languages in different ways, right? It seems like you hit the wall with a with with C and Java because you were getting uh, mowed under by all the tedious details. And it seems like the first time that you tried functional programming, it was the abstractions that got you, right? So it almost seems like you weren't at the point in your career to actually need these things. And so you weren't properly motivated. Is that- is That, that, that sounds about right. I think, I think you summed it up perfectly. Yeah, that sounds about right. So one of the things that um, that I've been fortunate to do is to try to introduce first-time programmers to Elixir, and I run across two major problems. The, the first one is that, gosh, I can be so much more productive so much more quickly in these other languages. And the second thing is that the abstractions are pretty deep. So very often, you'll introduce these this whole new avalanche of abstractions but you don't replace the basic building blocks in objects and you know, methods and, um, and attributes, right? So one of the things that Sophie and I are trying to do in the, um, in the programming live view book is to introduce this, this central glue concept that we talked about in the last podcast, which is CRC, which if you picture a pipe, 
The head's the constructor, the middle is a reducer, and the end of the pipe is, um, is a converter. And it seems like um, if we have those basic tools to give to new programmers, rather than starting with concurrency and OTP and things, um, it sounds like maybe we'll have more success teaching more users Elixir. Yeah, that, uh, that sounds uh, like a good approach to me. I think, what is it? Learn you some Erlang? I think he's got an image where it has like the runtime in the language as like an onion. And uh, like the, you know, the, the very center of it is like distributed Erlang. And then on the surface is, you know, some more uh, easier to approach topics. And I think, I think that's a, that's a good way to, uh, to approach the language and the runtime is, you know, start with those easier to consume abstractions and, uh, and, uh, and models, and then kind of work your way into these higher level, but more complex abstractions. It really sounds um, not dissimilar from Lars, what you were talking about in, uh, I think the episode that we recorded, this would be like two episodes ago or so when you were talking about when you were first, I think going through some computer science courses, maybe with C++ or something, I'll, I'll, I'm sure butcher this story, but I think you were saying you felt like it was too abstract. You couldn't build anything useful with it. And then later you found your way to the basic building blocks of HTML and CSS. And all of a sudden you could make a web page, And that was like what really captured your imagination. And it's, it's kind of the same story, right? Like we need to give learners the tools that they need to actually make a thing and solve the problem in front of them. And that's what kind of gets people hooked. Um, but Lars, please correct me in all the ways I've misrepresented your own experiences. Uh, it was definitely not a course, but it was a book uh, in my in my young days. Uh, I I was still uh, still in primary like oh in some kind of primary education. I don't know how to translate it to English, but uh, for sure. And I I think that sort of is a challenge with introducing people to Elixir, not because Elixir as such is necessarily a more complex language. But the things it offers in, for example, concurrency and reliability and like all these good things, you actually need to have some experience. You have to have some battle scars to know to want that. Uh, it's like, okay, but I'm doing PHP and everything's fine. Yeah, but you don't have any scale or you don't have any of the problems that Erlang was built to solve. Uh, you aren't trying to provide anything that Erlang is trying to provide. But I think Elixir is simple and approachable enough that you can teach it to, to absolute beginners. But I think you have to be careful about what you introduce, much to, to Bruce's point. Like, you got to restrain some of all the fancy tools we have to let people just do, do the thing because they don't care about distribution, they don't care about clusters, they don't care about concurrency yet. Um, I, I know most of my concerns about like scaling and concurrency came from running big microservice architecture built on Python, which has similar issues. If you, if you use green threads and G event stuff, you get the same issues that Node.js has pretty much. It's almost equivalent. Uh, I think Node.js is faster, but it has the same issue. It's basically single threaded unless doing IO. Uh, and that and a lot of reliability problems around that led me towards Elixir rather than uh, like functional programming. I didn't really care about that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, right? Like the draw for early learners is not 
concurrency and fault tolerance and scaling to your distributed system, it's that Elixir does offer a really compelling programming model for people who are just learning how to think about code. And it really allows you to learn these basic concepts and abstractions in a way that you can build up to solving these problems, you know, at the right time when you actually do have those in front of you. But for somebody that's, you know, been out there in this field, in this industry for years and is dealing with these problems, then Elixir is still the answer because of Erlang's concurrency model and OTP. So basically it has something for everyone and is the standout winner. Yeah, what's, what's really cool is, um, Alex, you mentioned Dave Thomas and um, he didn't really introduce the pipes to Elixir, he just elevated its importance. And I think that that was a super important move because what that gave us is a compelling idea that functional programming is about transformations. And it seems really basic and that functions should compose and that functions, when they're composed end to end in that order, it's fundamentally different from, you also mentioned Lisp where everything is backwards when you start, right? You have a whole bunch of parentheses and one thing calls the next calls the next, but that's not the way that you would code Lisp if, if you were starting, um, if you were a more experienced developer, right? You build a composition where the things are run in the order, uh, basically by threading them th through something like the Elixir pipe. But Dave's introduction of that tool kind of introduced and made Elixir accessible to a whole new class of users. And I think that probably you're not the only one, even in this chat room, but certainly in the world that is using Elixir because Dave Thomas said it was important and showed why it was important and provided some of the basic models for thinking about Elixir. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I, I remember that conference talk where he, I think he probably talked about the pipe for like 10 minutes straight it really did leave a profound impact on, on how I program where it's like, oh, my functions should be small. They should be easily composable. Uh, you know, I should limit the side effects and then just pass my data through. And at the beginning I have, uh, you know, my, my starting point. And at the end, I, at the end of the pipe, I have, you know, what I need to you know move on to the next bit of my, uh, my project. Yeah. I mean, to, to this day, that's, that's still how I try to, to keep my code. So yeah, Dave's Dave's talk left quite the quite the impact on me, and even the title in that book, right? Is um, you know programming Elixir, and then was it pragmatic concurrent fun or something like that that had the pipes in the subtitle, which was oh yeah pretty controversial at the time. Yeah, yeah, that's that. I think that was the the second book I read because it was Elixir in Action by Sasha Yurik, and then I read Dave Thomas's book, which was uh, more of the fundamentals because I got to some bits of Elixir in Action. Whereas I was reading, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And then my, you know, my fingers touched the, the keyboard and I was like, I have no idea how to do this. <laughs> so I, I figured I, I, uh, I got to a certain point in Elixir in action. I was like, all right, I got to get some more fundamentals. So then I read Dave Thomas's book after that. And then I got some of those, those missing bits that I needed to um, get onto those later chapters and, and really understand them in Elixir in action. Sasha is, um, he actually wrote the book that uh, exactly the one you mentioned um, that I wish that I'd written. I mean, above all the other ones, you know, that's the one that I wish I'd written. It was, it's a really fabulous book. But you were involved in writing most of the other ones, uh, to be fair. I saw that list recommended reading for like getting into Elixir at different levels or learning throughout like your different levels in Elixir. And I believe you were involved in the majority of that list of a dozen or so books. 
So I think you're, you're doing well, Bruce. Five of nine for sure. And a couple more this year. So on the topic of some of the things that, you know, gives Elixir superpowers or empowers developers, uh, I think that might be a good segue into today's topic, courtesy of Alex, which if I may be so bold as to introduce centers on observability in Elixir. Do you want to give us a little bit of overview of what you wanted to chat about today, Alex? Yeah, sure thing. Um, where to begin? Observability as a whole can be kind of broken down into a few different categories, uh, those being logs, metrics, and uh, uh, and traces. And uh, you know, we can kind of cover all those bits uh, as, as we chat today. But uh, yeah, I really think that the, the, the virtual machine specifically uh, that we run on gives us so much information as to what it's actually doing uh, that I, I haven't really seen this kind of uh, like runtime introspection in a lot of other languages and runtimes. And I think that's you know, very unique to uh, you know, Elixir and, and the Beam. And it really, it really makes it, for lack of a better term, easy to see what is your runtime doing, where are you seeing problems, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, help you as a developer pinpoint and, and solve those uh, those problems. So that's kind of what I what I want to uh, deep dive into today. Yeah, I've been um, like really just so impressed by the observability tooling in Elixir and in the Beam, and I think that. For such a long time, observability has been sort of treated as like, I don't know if second class citizen is the right phrase, but I kind of feel like there's been this division between like web developers, write the code to make the thing. And then somehow observability sort of falls to the wayside or we think it's the responsibility of SREs or DevOps, which of course we can pick apart and trash how DevOps, you know, is, is so mistreated and mischaracterized. So I feel like for a lot of my career, like earlier on, I I never really thought about observability. I didn't really think it was my responsibility. I felt that it was this whole extra set of skills that I wouldn't be able to learn or that weren't really super relevant to my ability to deliver you know, my work as, as an engineer, as a web developer. But you know, increasingly that's not true for so many reasons with so many new tools that are out there, but especially in Elixir and especially on the Beam, the way that observability is built directly into the language and directly into the framework just makes it so easy and so clear how we as engineers who are writing libraries, writing applications are empowered to observe our own code and we should observe our own code and make it easy to do so. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I, I'm thinking back to some of my earlier bits of my career where like I'd never used a log statement in my life when I was, you know, programming my first, you know, couple of JIRA tickets there that I had to submit. For sure, for sure. And uh, yeah, luckily there were some senior engineers uh, that were like, hey, Alex, you know, if something goes wrong here, we need to know about it. You know, put a, put a log statement for, for God's sakes. <laughs> but, uh, and I feel like that's usually where you start is, you know, with log statements, just because it's, it's usually pretty easy comparatively uh, to, to gathering metrics or traces. You just usually use your languages uh, like built-in logger. Um, but then the next step after that is now it's time to start capturing some metrics on what's going on in the system. And uh, you know that, that requires its own hurdles to get over. And then once you get over, uh, you know, over that, then it's time to start capturing traces on what the application is doing. And then you know once you once you do those three things, you have you know all three pillars of observability, and you know all the SREs will come and shake your hand at your office. So I think this is one of the places where Jose's kind of wisdom and the ordering of the things that he chooses to attack is um, really front and center. 
I remember in, in the very young days of, of Elixir, Jose would take on too much, right? Like case in point, Dynamo, he was trying to write a language, <laughs> stand the language up and say, oh, by the way, we'll throw in a web server. And um, you know, we kind of scaled that back with Plug. And then he was able to get someone else to own and share in the work and share in the organization of the Phoenix project in Chris McCord. And it seems like we were holding off till exactly the right moment to, um, to talk about telemetry and expose that in the live view dashboard. I remember Jose writing a little bit about the observability ideas in adopting Elixir. But as he, as he kind of got into it and, and as he had all the tools that he needed to, to push something into, the, into that web server platform, it was exactly the right product and exactly the right time in that Phoenix dashboard. Yeah, for sure. And live dashboard is such a nice, such a nice experience from the developer standpoint, where you just, you know, copy and paste a couple of lines from the, uh, the installation instructions. And with minimal effort, you've now stood up the first two pillars of observability where you have, you know, your logs where you can, you can um, tail them in real time right there from the, the live dashboard. And then you also have some metrics, uh, you know, via telemetry. So I think and that's kind of the story of Elixir, where it's like an amazing developer experience with not a lot of work that you need to put in. And so I think uh, that's a super I important love that. tool. An amazing developer experience with not a lot of work. Who doesn't want that? That sells itself. It's it's funny. I was looking at a sensor project um, written by a guy named John Carstens, and it was it was just this um, this air quality sensor. And nothing remarkable about the project until I kind of scanned down and saw that it was basically dumping everything into telemetry. And um, that means that you could plug the sensor in and then see air quality on your Phoenix Live View dashboard with very little, little effort. It was really kind of a stunning experience. So cool. Yeah, the, the integration between telemetry and uh live dashboard and just the ability to extend and start collecting and visualizing your own metrics again with very little work which is a favorite theme of course is is so cool and so awesome to see but before we go too far down this particular path uh would alex or anyone else care to define for our listeners who might not know what is this telemetry magic that we're talking about yeah i can i can take that one since i've been pretty in the telemetry weeds the past uh you know six months uh, so the easiest way I've found to describe telemetry is think of it like a, a synchronous pub subsystem. Uh, so all your favorite libraries, you know, Phoenix, Oban, Ecto, all have these telemetry events that they can publish. And you could have an arbitrary number of uh, things attached to those events. Um, you know, the keyword being synchronous because uh, telemetry under the hood will you know, linearly kind of evaluate all the callbacks that have been attached to that event. So that's why you can have like live dashboard attached to Ecto events and you can, you can output those beautiful graphs in live dashboard. And then you could also have your own handlers attached to those, uh, those events and you, know, you could do your own thing. And the API is pretty, it's pretty simple. And I, I think that's, it's both, uh, it's very elegant and very pragmatic where you have um, all you have is your, your kind of your measurements associated with that event. So that'd be like timings or, or durations, you know, numerical kind of measurements. And then you have uh, metadata. And that's kind of it. You just have measurements and metadata. And then metadata usually have like uh, 
uh, textual data. So like if it's if it's ecto, if it's an ecto event, maybe it's the the repo that is associated with this event, or you know maybe the you know the table or something like that. Um, and so I think you know the fact that we have this you know, community tooling and a lot of projects are now using it makes that you know that uh, that interface amazing, and uh, you know we can get those cool tools like live dashboard to work with libraries that they were never meant to work with because we're all using this community tooling and this consistent kind of interface. You know, it kind of strikes me that we're getting reuse that we don't expect because the abstractions in the language are right. One of the things that I really like about working with the Julia language is that it has this thing called multiple dispatch where you kind of, you, you build out a type and the type might interact with some other things. And, um, and then, so you essentially implement the multiple dispatch for the right, for, for the right types. And you could do that either on the plug end or the socket end, right? On, on, the, on the consumer or the producer. And it's, it seems like telemetry is really close, but that's not unusual with some of the things around Elixir, like the whole lifecycle chain just works no matter where you introduce something. You get that. You get that whole Erlang resiliency. It's it's kind of a wonderful thing. Yeah, very much plus one to that sort of plug and play mentality. Like with your telemetry events, you know, you can just start emitting events. Especially, let's say, if you're a library author and you want to create some transparency and observability into the behavior of code that then others will be including into their applications and you might attach your own telemetry handlers to do stuff with those events. You might say, okay, I'm definitely sending this to Datadog because that's the particular observability flavor of my application or my org, or you might just do nothing and leave them there. And other people in the future can attach handlers that send to Datadog or I don't know what else. Is there a Splunk adapter yet? Something like that. Log all the things, send yourself a text message, get a phone call if there's a particular error. It's really just, it's up to you. It's very flexible. Yeah, and I think uh, it's wise, like the synchronous nature of telemetry uh, was a bit surprising first time I saw it because the typical thing for communicating in Elixir with some unknown amount of uh, listeners would be to actually just do PubSub. And some of the conveniences in working with Elixir and for example, for me that haven't dug too deep into live view, but I've set up a few live views. I've really found it convenient that it's just like working with gen servers because I've done tons of gen servers and it's just like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a gen server meets a Phoenix controller. Uh, you get a message, you add it to the state. It does the thing and suddenly magic happens. Nice. But with telemetry, that wouldn't have been that good of an idea because there are serious runtime concerns with like mailbox size when you start collecting events for metrics and observability, because there can be tons of these metrics. So you leave it to the person connecting and starting to gather these events to make sure that it's a performant thing. And it's very clear if you read the telemetry docs, like make this quick, it needs to be quick because it will, it will run on everything. It's not as asynchronous. But if it was, like, I think most people that have worked with ingesting logs or shipping logs uh, know uh, the kind of queues you can build up if you screw it up badly. 
uh, and uh, telemetry sort of uh, moves that one step out to like, no, you actually have to pay attention to this or your library has to pay attention to this and usually the library solves it. Yeah, I was also really surprised um, that it was synchronous, although for all the reasons that you mentioned, when you stop and think about it, it actually makes perfect sense. But I think when people talk about telemetry, um, the language that we tend to use sounds like pub sub language to me sometimes. We say that we're, you know, emitting an event or sending an event, and that's very much like broadcasting or at the very least message passing between processes. But when I actually dug through some of the telemetry source code, and this was my first my first time really diving into um, Erlang libraries and Erlang source code, I was really surprised to find that what backs these telemetry events and how do we look up the handlers and execute a handler for an event? It's an ETS table. And it's like, it's so simple and it's so elegant, right? You've got your event stored in ETS and then that's the key. And then the value is the handler. So an event happens and we just look up the key and we execute the handler function and that's it. Um, and being able to trace that through was, was definitely a cool experience. And that was actually the first uh, bits of Erlang that I ever wrote. Um, I remember I, I commented on an issue to change some documentation uh, regarding something. And, uh, you know, jo Jose was like, uh, you know, thanks for the documentation update. Would you also mind like implementing the feature? I was like, oh, <laughs> no of course deal. I will. <laughs> and uh, is that the um, is that the telemetry attach function that you were responsible for adding to the uh, telemetry the library or is that uh, the span function? So the span yeah, function me, yeah. is a is a convenience where it'll it'll emit your start, your stop, and your exception if it uh, if it's ever encountered. Um, so yeah, I, that was the first Erlang code I've ever written. Which is actually after doing Elixir for quite a while, it wasn't it wasn't too bad to actually write uh, wasn't too bad to write Erlang and kind of those same concepts kind of uh, you know transferred. The only thing I had to be careful of was the uh, uh, the fact that you can only name a variable once and there's no there's no pin operator but once you get over that you're you're all set yeah, that's that's really pretty fascinating because um, one of the things that you mentioned was that lisp threw too many things at once at you right it's it's you had all of these parentheses the syntax the um the whole structure of of what you're trying to do with a super powerful language backing it with um with prefix notation rather than infix notation with parentheses everywhere. And it strikes me that if you had code coded Erlang, then you would have been in very much the same boat with, with a very alien prologue inspired syntax that that is alien to you and you didn't have the abstractions to back. So since you had the abstractions, the syntax was palatable. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, with, without a question, if uh, if Erlang popped up in that programming language uh, concepts course, I would have just tossed it aside. <laughs> well, on the note of just sort of working with telemetry and maybe even digging into that span function and some of the other conventions there, there's a great blog post from Chris Keithley on telemetry conventions that gets into, you know, start, stop, exception, and then span. Um, we'll add it to the show notes. I think it's a nice overview of how to use telemetry in your Elixir app. Yeah, and Alex, thanks for that span thing. It simplifies things significantly. Oh yeah, yeah. You could thank uh, you know Jose and the other people on the uh, uh, on the team over there. I just I, I took their you know their their fifty comment uh, issue where they were going back and forth with ideas and just and just wrote the function and then that was yeah. <laughs> I did I did the small bits. They did all the the heavy lifting. Well, speaking of Alex's incredibly helpful contributions to the Elixir community. 
you want to tell us a little bit about this library you've been working on, Promix? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so Promix has been probably like six months in the making, but like a year and a half in the thinking. The idea behind uh, behind Promix is with all of these libraries now in the Elixir ecosystem, uh, you know, emitting telemetry events. And the fact that we have this consistent interface to work across, which is the, you know, the measurements map and the, the metadata map. Uh, at any point in time, we could attach to all of these events and capture metrics with you know, very, very minimal work from uh, the user. Kind of how like live dashboard does it where you, uh, you, know, you define that list of metrics and magically a whole bunch of stuff appears when you hit uh, your live dashboard route. Um, so, so Promix uh, doesn't aim to surface these metrics through anything like Live Dashboard, but it instead uh, surfaces a metrics endpoint for Prometheus to scrape. And for anyone unfamiliar with Prometheus, you know, the long story short is that Prometheus is a time series database, so it'll store data over time. And uh, as opposed to traditional uh, metrics systems where you, you know, kind of push your metrics over like UDP, like StatsD, to your, to your time series database. Prometheus will actually reach out to all of its configured sources and scrape metrics at a regular interval. So for example, I think the default's like five seconds. So every five seconds, Prometheus will say, okay, what are all the services that I need to scrape metrics from? It'll hit those HTTP endpoints and uh, parse that, that text document. And then that's the time series data at that time interval. Um, so Promix, is uh, is targeting Prometheus, and uh, one of the other nice things is for every bit of data that I surface through Promix, and which comes from telemetry, uh, I also have an, an accompanying Grafana dashboard. So with I, th I think there's a video on YouTube from a, a talk I gave uh, a few months back. I'll find it and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. But within like five minutes, you can get Prometheus metrics from your app on, you know, Ecto, your application itself, uh, the Beam. Um, if you're running Obin, I also am working on an Obin plugin and an Obin uh, Grafana dashboard. And the idea is have all these kind of uh, put, all these uh, things put together as plugins. So there'd be like an Obin plugin that also includes like an Obin Grafana dashboard or a Beam plugin with a Grafana uh, Beam dashboard. Um, and then with just you know two, three lines of configuration, you're effectively telling Promix, hey, attach yourself to all of these telemetry events that are already happening in your system. There's just nothing uh, you know, attached to them for this purpose. Attach to all these, uh, these events. Um, if you wanna be so kind as to also give Promix your uh, a Grafana API key, uh, Promix will also upload all your dashboards on app start to Grafana. And there's also a Grafana API for sticking annotations on graphs. So you could see, you know, my app started at this time interval and it stopped at this time interval. And so Promix is really trying to take care of that, that second pillar of observability. And so, uh, you know, whether it's your libraries, whether it's your runtime, Promix is trying to capture all those things and then get them to Prometheus and then uh, present them to you in Grafana. So that's kind of the elevator pitch if the elevator went up and down a few times. That's, that's interesting. So it seems like I implemented something really similar to that, just a very basic version uh, with my sensor hub for the Grasio module, right? So we had to, as, as sensor measurements came in, we had to essentially make each measurement uniform, right? And, and that's, that's one of the, you probably have a, um, a behavior or protocol to do that. It's a behavior. 
Yep. Yep. One of the two. Right. Yeah. And um, so so I did that. And then I had um, and then I had the pub subsystem. And of course, you're using telemetry, which is kind of a um, a synchronous uh, pub sub backing. So, yeah, I would have totally used it if I'd known about it and um, had a few more words to talk about it. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really cool. And I think I think Nerves is very well positioned for those kind of like IoT uh, data acquisition style systems. Um, and I I'm I might pick up your course, Bruce, and and uh, and uh, that'll be a perfect excuse to buy yet another Raspberry Pi, so I could stick one and you know on the first floor, one on the second floor. So there's a uh, policy that that the listeners might not know about. If you pick up a um, a Nerves package then you can often get the NERVS foundation to get your hardware to support your, your NERVS habit. They can't, they can't pay for work, but they're looking for maintainers. Gosh, I think that, that Frank has, um, I don't know, something like 200 packages that he supports. And um, that means he, he can't, like, like a lot of open source creators, he, he doesn't get a lot of the, the benefits of his creation. Um, he doesn't get as much of a chance to create just, just as a note for the listeners, if you wanted to pick up some some NERVS packages to create and you want to kind of support your, your hardware habit, hint, Alex, <laughs> you can um, help the community and yourself at the same time. So it's adopt a project to receive some hardware. That's it. Very nice. Maybe it's not the best exchange if you're, if you're building support for a three cent sensor. I would still recommend it. Uh, Nerves is a great way of learning more, more Elixir, and I love that community. It's a great bunch of people. Yeah, I've been I've been trying to get a couple of my friends into Elixir, and uh, you know, one of them is he likes to be a little closer to the metal, and I you know, pointed them in the the Nerves direction, and uh, I think he's been at it for like two weeks now. And he, he you know he send me you know compiler warnings and errors like oh, what what is this what is that. And I'm, you know, I'm trying my best to get him through all these, you know, superficial kind of problems, so he could really, really uh, reap the benefits of the the language and the runtime. But he's, yeah, he's loving the the nerves experience so far. It's pretty bizarre that that we're we're finally coming back to the roots of the, the Erlang system in Elixir, right? And so we can see some of the benefits of being able to to craft with the binary arithmetic. This this many bytes is the header. This many bytes is. Um, kind of this this register this many bytes is um is the open mode so i was kind of building these uh, bit stream maps for interacting with a ambient light sensor that was just pennies on the dollar is really a fabulous experience sounds like we need to uh schedule a nerves episode coming up and really dig into some of this stuff oh for sure <laughs> And I think on that note, with a teaser for some future episode on NERVS, we will wrap up. A big thank you to our host for today, Alex, for introducing this great topic on observability and for giving us a chance to learn a little bit more about you and your background in Elixir and programming in general. Thank you to the rest of our hosting panel, Lars and Bruce, and thank you as always to our wonderful sponsor, Graxio. We will catch you guys on the next episode of Beam Radio.